Good morning again. Um, I am, I'm really happy to be here. Um, Jeff and I were in seminary together, and uh, so we are, time goes back to Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, Reformed Theological Seminary, and I um, love Jeff very much, and I know you're um, blessed to have him as your pastor. I'm certain of that. Um, our passage is in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Verse 15 is a very famous passage for evangelism. Uh, we get our words uh, apologetics from that, and a lot of us think evangelism is mostly apologetic, uh, being able to give answers, and I think that's part of it. It certainly is. Um, it's not less than that. I think it's much more than that. And um, so we're going to read our passage, a very familiar passage, and I think I'll be able to pull something a little different out of it and maybe inspire you. Um, yeah, this will be a, a topical sermon. I know probably you might be more used to expository, kind of get through the Bible and stuff. If I was pastoring a church, that's what I would do. Um, but this will be just kind of a one-off, and I get to sort of ride the hobby horse that I'm riding right now, which is evangelism, and so I'm going to try and pull out as much stuff from that as I can, okay? But uh, let's read um, God's written word. Here now, the word of God. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Have a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is the written word of God. Thanks be to God. Uh, Father, bless this time, bless this word, uh, that as I preach, we will find ourselves at the foot of the cross, looking into the face of Jesus. Uh, that is my heart, that is my desire. Uh, may his name be glorified. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Uh, all right, so this very famous passage, uh, you probably know, at least verse 15. And Peter is working hard to say, hey, in this life there's kind of suffering that you'll go through, particularly because you're proclaiming the gospel, and that there's going to be a lot of pushback. It could be a whole range of things. And here in America, right now in 2023, we have a certain bit of a pushback, uh, right? Um, people don't necessarily want to hear what we have to say. Um, and uh, we don't get persecuted in any grand ways, but that's always possible. But I think there's a lot of rejection, there's a lot of pushback, um, and so we uh, experience that. I think one of the things he's pointing out is something that I really missed. Um, I, I knew this passage well and I missed something through the years. Now, did you notice in here when, like in verse 15, when you're supposed to tell people about Jesus, when you're supposed to tell them about the hope you have? Um, uh, the, the word for give the reason um, is you know, sort of a, a, an apologetic. When, you, when are you supposed to tell them about the hope that you have? I never really noticed this, but it's when they ask. When people ask you, well, tell me about you, and that's when we tell them. And I think my big takeaway from this, and I told you, I, this is, I'm, I'm, I got the lens of evangelism on it, and I'm looking at this, and so I'm pulling that out, right? 
I mean, there's a lot more that could be said. This may not be the center of the meaning of this, but it's in the target area, I think. So my big takeaway from this, as I thought it through, certainly is you want to be there when people, you know, I mean, they can't ask you a question unless you're with them. So this is a big passage saying that, hey, we need to spend a lot of time with people that don't know Jesus. I think at the very least we could say that. It means that, hey, be there when they ask you the question, where do you get your hope? Um, the verses 16 and 17 indicate that as well, because it says, have a good conscience so that when you are slandered, when people push back, they don't want what you have, and they maybe slander you, they say something about you, uh, by those who revile your good behavior. So, they're able to see you doing something. So there's a proximity. The word I always like to think of sort of in into the wild stuff is that it's about proximity. People can't ask you for the hope you have unless you're with them. And they're not going to see your good behavior unless you're with them. So this is a big, this is at least for me, right? I'm just thinking, wow, that means we, we should be out of, you know, orthodox real estate where most of the time we spend our days, right? We're, we're not here much during the week at all. We're out there in our jobs, our neighborhoods, living with our families, doing all kinds of things. And so this is a big passage about proximity, I think. It really pushes hard to say, now go be with non-believers. And if I was going to do a short sermon, I'd say, that's it. That's what this passage says. Now go be with non-believers. Now just go. I think we need a little more than that. Um, I think what I want to do this morning is inspire you. I think I, I've set the bar really low. It's kind of like my wife's standard for a husband. She set it really low, and so I, I married her. Um, I, I like to sort of maybe do that for evangelism this morning, is set the bar a little low and say that if I can inspire you to begin to think about evangelism, just start to think about it because it can seem overwhelming because our culture is changing. You can see it, and you can feel it, even here in Athens. And I suspect that um, as people are starting to move into Athens, you're seeing it, you're feeling it. They're, 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 they're bringing stuff from all over, and it doesn't feel like it used to. Um, it's different. It really is. And if we're going to reach people, we need to be aware of it and think differently. So if I can get you to think about evangelism this morning, then I think I've done it. Um, but a way, the way that I want to do that is to inspire you to go spend more time with non-believers, have a proximity to them so they can see your good behavior, and they can ask you for the hope that you have. I'm going to do that by telling a few stories, okay? And I'm going to try to inspire you to begin to think about evangelism. Um, I'm going to tell you about my evangelism teacher. Uh, my evangelism teacher is Billy. He's my son. He's a 31-year-old man that uh, is autistic. He lives in a group home. But before we got to that place where he was living in a group home, uh, he was our firstborn child. He was born on December 31st, 1991. I always thought, man, there's going to be a party every day on his birthday. Because um, it's New Year's Eve, right? And I thought, this is so cool, man. We get the deduction for the whole year. 
<laughs> I thought this was awesome. I thought he was going to be an accountant. Like, you know, to be born in the, yeah, we get the deduction for the year. First born, that, that's one of the coolest things. But you lose it too real early <laughs> when they turn older. But, um, but he was normal. Ten fingers, ten toes. Uh, I remember him lifting his head up in that, you know, in the bassinet at the hospital, and I thought, man, he recognized my voice. And uh, my my beautiful bride, Cherry, was never more beautiful than holding her firstborn. I thought, oh, here we go. This is great. Um, and as time progressed, uh, Billy wasn't keeping up with all my all of our friends' kids, right? So we thought, man, what's going on? And we took him to a doctor, you know, we went to the doctor, and the doctor said, well, yeah, I'm a little concerned, but not really, it's probably delayed development kind of a thing. And so we started taking him to uh, getting therapy, um, and um, uh, just sort of set up on the, you know, primarily speech therapy. Uh, and in the meantime, uh, we had two other children, uh, uh, Alec, his brother, was born, and then Kelly, our youngest. Um, we, I, I had a sense of call to ministry, um, and so I left the, being an architect in Atlanta and moving to Charlotte, North Carolina. It was while we were at seminary that Billy was diagnosed with autism. Um, and autism now is this big spectrum, right? So on one end, you have really very high functioning, uh, you know, probably works at NASA, you know, I mean, like very high functioning uh, people that are on the spectrum that way. Well, Billy's on this end over here, probably 20 years ago, 30 years ago, would probably be more accurately labeled mentally retarded. Um, but the autism diagnosis for us was like, was, you know, really floored us. But what, what we started to do, this was in 1998, we, you know, my wife particularly goes you know, immediately on the internet. We got to figure out what to do. And so we went to a doctor um, that had a particular program that we felt worked. So we drive from Charlotte to Memphis one time while we were in seminary to go and have them looked at. And we drive back. We've got a program now to work with them. We're going to fix this. We're going to fix them. We got this program. Uh, I graduate and I go to plant the church in the northern suburbs of Atlanta and we're still, you know, we're, we found these new doctors to, to augment what we're already currently doing. We drive to Melbourne, Florida all the time. A famous celebrity took their autistic child there and he did really well and they wrote a book, right? Um, it was about this time too that Sherry uh, came to me and said I, she could not look at another blog posting on the internet about a overachieving mom, how they mainstreamed their autistic child, because that's not what we were seeing. We were working very, very hard uh, all the time, doing uh, all the program, all the stuff that these doctors were prescribing. Um, but she said, I, no, I can't, I can't look sideways anymore. I can't do this. Um, we're just, you know, I, I can't read something else. Um, and so we started to embrace this idea that all families with special needs children go into, you sort of settle in, you go, well, wait a minute, this is everything, we're trying everything and nothing's working. Um, we began to embrace that one side fits all, doesn't work. Um, we were realizing how helpless we were to get Billy to be who we wanted him to be, right? We're helpless. There was no switch I could flick to fix them. 
No simplistic approaches were going to work. Um, it was way more complex than that. I mean, we were, he was getting older, right? We were seeing less and less fruit of our efforts to try to help him. And so we got to that place, we had to figure out what to do. We had to figure out how to be a family, right? 80% of marriages, this is the stat, 80% of marriages fail with special needs children involved. It's sort of like what happens when a child dies. Uh, there's about an 80% marriages break up after that because people grieve differently. When you have a special needs child, something dies, but something dies every day. Your hope for them, what you thought for them, dies. And the, what you thought, even how it would be with a special needs child, that changes. And you're dying to that continually, right? Um, and we had to figure out how to be husband and wife. We had to figure out how to raise the other two without it being something that was something they would resent. And you had to go through that dynamic. And they had to figure out, those, the, their, Billy's brother and sister had to figure out how to be siblings to him. And that was something that was difficult. And that, that, all that stuff that was going on, we were trying to figure out, how do you live? How do you do this? We needed something for the rest of us because everything we read was a book about how, look what happened and look what they're doing. You know, we did this and now they're this. You know, no one ever puts anything up on a, on a, on a website saying, no, nah, this isn't really going to work. <laughs> it only works for this percentage of the people. All the rest of us have to figure out how to do this. Um, now, um, we never stopped getting him the best care we possibly could be, but what ended up happening was that Billy kept getting worse. There was this low trajectory of him getting worse and worse. Actually, it's probably down, right? And by the time when he turned 17, there was about 18 months prior to him turning 17, where he, it just really took off, where his behavior began to get really bad. He began very frustrated and very aggressive in the home. I started getting phone calls saying, Dad, get home right now. Get over here now. Billy is really losing it. Um, I got a lot of those phone calls, and they started to increase as he was getting closer to 17. And then one day I got the phone call. It was a Saturday. I was at a session meeting and got the phone call. And my son Alec goes, Dad, get home right now. He said, Mr. Kevin, a friend of ours across the street, is over here trying to keep Billy. He's, he's, he's run through the neighborhood and he's trying to break windows and, and he's broken stuff in our house. And uh, he said, get home. Um, that was the last day that Billy lived with us. The story of how he got placed, how he's being cared for now is, is miraculous and it's wonderful. Um, he is an adult man and is part of a program where he lives in a group home in Huntsville and we see him every week. We're, we're, we see him a lot. Um, his care now though is something where we still beat ourselves up a lot. Um, like we're not doing enough. Adult special care needs, uh, adult care of any type is never really a warm fuzzy. If you've ever had to have a parent and with adult care or anything like that, you know it's just this ongoing thing. We have to stay on top of it. You don't, you know, you don't relent at all. You just have to stay on top of it. Um, and really what happened to us while Billy was at home with us, and especially as he just kept getting worse, 
we became a hyper-vigilant family. I always want to know how Sherry's doing and how the kids are doing, almost to the point it's annoying. And we're still like that because we still want to care for Billy. I want to know how my other kids are doing. You know, how was that? What happened as a result of Billy? How are you different? How are Sherry and I different? All that stuff happens, and we're trying to think about all that uh, at the same time. But uh, in that process, we learned a lot of survival skills. Having Billy as our son has permanently shaped all of us in the family. Um, apart from Christ in us, he is the, him in our lives is the most real thing that we have. Everything else just doesn't seem as real, right? Because some special needs just really drive so many things home, and you really have to think about so many things. It's, it's probably the primary event that has made us and is making us who we are. And I can say this with absolute confidence, that it, all of that is under the wise and perfect direction of our sovereign God and King Jesus. Um, but here's the thing, it never feels good, ever. Ever. Alright. Um, in that process, which I tried to go quickly and summarize, just tell you what our experience was. Uh, there, were a, there were a number of turning points, okay? A number of turning points. One was when we realized we were helpless. That was major. Big turns one. We're helpless to do anything to fix it. Another was when Sherry announced, no more websites, no more blogs. I'm not looking at any of this stuff anymore. That was a big turning point. Um, but we also, in that whole process, was us realizing we needed something for the rest of us. Uh, where we could acknowledge how helpless we were to make any difference in his life. Um, but still embraced our calling to care for him. Um, so on the one hand, we're saying we can't fix Billy, but it didn't take us off the hook. It actually said, well, now what do we do? How do we, how do we care for him? So in one sense, you sort of say, I can't do this, but what can I do? I want to be all in on that, right? You can't fix him, but I want to care for him. What, and that's that, that, that sort of thing really allowed us to move forward. We're helpless, we can't fix them, but we're going we're gonna to care for him. How do you live in that tension between can't fix them, got to care for them? There are no simplistic answers. Uh, there's not anything that works one size fits all. And so having come to that point, and here we are now, Billy's you know, thir almost a 32-year-old man, we, right? What are the things that I've pulled, and what are the things that I've noticed helped me embrace our call to be ready to give everyone an answer for the hope that we have. I'm going to tell you a few things that you can take with you, and then we'll be done. Okay? So I'm going to transition now to say, here is what Billy taught me about evangelism. That there is a need for something for the rest of us that acknowledges that there are no simplistic answers or approaches or formulas, even for evangelism. Um, we weren't fitting in any kind of program for Billy. We weren't fitting in. We kind of felt like outsiders. Uh, we were noticing that our life with Billy wasn't academic or theoretical. Sometimes when we want to go and learn about evangelism, we'll read a book and it seems theoretical or sort of clinical. And I think there's a sense where that needs to happen on some level if you're communicating something. You say, here's, here's what we know, here's what, here's what to do, and so there's, there's that part of it. But we were finding that we were living with Billy and taking care of him and doing stuff in real time. 
and it's real dynamic. It's not the way it is with people. You can say, in general, this is how it's like to go and evangelize, but once you enter into it, all bets are off. It's like I think is what Eisenhower said about D-Day, right? We have this great plan for the war, but as soon as the, <laughs> our, uh, the first boot hits the shore, that plan is going to be changing. You know, we've we got to be really nimble here. And that's how it is with a special needs child. That's how it is with evangelism, I have found. Um... Because it's not academic, it's not clinical. It happens in real time with real people, and it's real messy. So we need somebody to acknowledge that, and that's what Into the Wild does. I, I'm acknowledging that. And so we have to say, all right, so it's important to have that base. And we have the base of our knowledge, and we were PCA. We're reformed people. We have the most peace of, I think, I, do we know what I love about being reformed? It's because of the sovereignty of God. And that is settled in my heart, in my mind. And the application and the implication is I'm humbled by that. Because he chose me. Not of anything about me. So I have hope for everyone. If he chose me, he took my heart of stone, gave me a heart of flesh. And what that does is it humbles, or should humble us, but it also makes us really bold to be able to go and talk to people with nothing to lose or prove. Right? Or protect. And I love that idea. And so that's, that's what sort of compels me and propels me into this. Um, so I will say that, this, that we had to develop with Billy a number of sayings that we could say to each other to sort of reorient ourselves when things got crazy. We'd have to go, okay, now let's, let's go back to first principles. And one of them was stay in Billy's life, uh, to be present. Just like, okay, we're going to stay in his life. Because when he got pulled out of the home, we had to figure out, well, what do we do now? And I don't know if you know this, but like when you have, if you have a special needs child and they turn 19, you don't automatically become their guardian. It's not something that it just happens. You have to apply for it. I didn't know. And it's, you know, you got to hire a lawyer. It's, it's a big racket, evidently, too. But <laughs> you have to hire a lawyer and then you become their guardian. And when we're standing in the room, swearing that we would care for him, we both cried. <clears throat> it was just like, I'm thinking, of course we will. But we had to, you know, go through that process. But we said, we, we want to stay in Billy's life. Um, I would say, and because we did that because it was so dynamic and we weren't always around him, but we had to stay in his life. I would say that's part of evangelism. When you have people in your life that don't know Jesus and you don't quite know what to do, I would always I just tell people, stay in their life. You know, text every once in a while, pop in, do something, stay in their lives somehow because they're going to go through something and if you're there, they might turn to you and ask you for the hope that you have. So I would say part of evangelism is just staying in people's lives. I learned that from Billy. We had to, because it was just crazy. We had to figure out how to do that. Another phrase that we said, other than stay, stay in Billy's life, was because we couldn't fix Billy, we said this to each other, well, then we're just going to ease the pain of the fall in Billy. <coughs> we're going to ease the pain of the fall in Billy. Right? You know, the, the fall, Genesis 3. That means all of life is uphill now. It's all hard. All of life is loss. There's a constant thing in life that's loss. 
One day we will die. Something will happen. There will be loss. All of our anxiety comes from trying to mitigate loss, right? All of life is uphill. And so we look at Billy, we go, he's broken because the fall. And we're just going to ease his pain. I can't fix him, but I can ease it. I can find the best care. And if that means it's us, fine. If it's somewhere else, fine. We're going to care for him somehow. We're going to ease the pain of the fall. And the other part of this that we would say, well, we're just going to take him exactly like he is. We're going to love him where he is and how he is. And the way that he is, when we get to see him, and we also say this, we're going to do exactly what he wants to do. We're not going to impose what we think he should do. We're going to do exactly what he wants to do. And so when we see him, it's the same thing every time. It's Target to buy markers and, and, and books to color in, and then it's McDonald's, and then he wants to go home. And so that's what we do. We, you know, heck, if it was me, I'd figure out all kinds of other stuff, but that's what he wants to do. So we ease the pain of the fall in Billy, because he's broken, just like you and me. And uh, we love him where he is and how he is. Because if there was a switch I could flip, I would flip it. So we have good visits and bad visits. Sometimes it's over the top bad. Sometimes it's just like, wow, thank you, Lord. That's how I am with people in my life. And this is how I want you to be with people in your life. I want people in my life to come to Jesus. And if there was a switch I could flip, I'd flip it. I'd go, where's your switch? You know, new heart, you know, new desires. But we all feel the pain of the fall, don't we? Everyone in your life is feeling the pain of the fall. All of life is uphill. We have momentary times of equilibrium where things are cool and great. You know, The Pilgrim's Progress, you ever all read that? Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that book. You know, there's that time where Pilgrim sort of finds that rest in that gazebo, and he's just, ah, you know, it's a rest. You know, because most of the time it's uphill, and then what did he do? He, fell, he kind of fell asleep, and he forgot the promises of God. You know, um, people out in the world, out in the wild, are trying to find all kinds of ways to ease the pain that they feel Most of the time, they want to create a world um, where they can look at it and they buffer themselves from the reality of of the transcendent and they just try to figure out ways to avoid all of this, but it always catches up with them. They will feel pain. And I want you to be standing near them by staying in their lives so they can turn to you and say, where do you find hope? I'm I'm scared right now. so you can ease, and so most of the time you're just going to be easing the pain of the fall in their lives by just loving on them, caring for them right where they are, accepting them the way they are. Because if you could flip the switch, you would, but who flips the switch anyways? It's the Holy Spirit. It's God, right? Um, so it does free us up to love well. So um, one other thing that's really important, and this is where I'll end, um, Prayer. I know it sounds like, yeah, we always come back, you know, we always talk about that. At the end of his life, they asked Tim Keller, like, you know, what would you have done differently if you could go back and do ministry? He said he would pray more. And so there's something very, very important about prayer. Um, I tell people that the only failure you can have in evangelism is if you are spending time with non believers and there's a certain amount of time beyond which. 
if like a year later they found out you were a Christian and they were surprised, that would be a failure. You want people in your life that to know, they, they need to know that you're a Christian. You don't lead with it, but they should know it. And one of the ways that you can do that is you can ask your friends that are non-believers, and you can say something like, hey, look, I know that, you know, at least I hope you know that I'm a Christian. Um, and I was wondering to know if you could do me a favor. Okay, sure, I would love to do you a favor. What is it? And I always say this. I'll say, can you tell me what hurts? Because I, will, I like to pray for my friends. And, and if you can tell me what hurts, you know, something in your heart, something you're going through, you know, um, I would love to pray for you. Um, and when I do pray for people, when I think about them, I follow an outline that I use with Billy. And I'm going to close with this story. Um, I'm going to try to bring it to a point. But ever since Billy was little, little, like, you know, five, six, and I put him to bed, and I promise you I did this every time, or most times, I would say the same prayer every time. I would say this. I would say, "Dear Lord, thank you that we're a family. Thank you, thank you that Billy is our son and my son. Um, Lord, give him sweet dreams." And in my head, I'm thinking, "Give him sweet dreams, Lord, where he is able to do what he wants to do. Maybe, maybe even doing things that he can't do now. But just give him a picture of that, Lord. Give him sweet dreams." And then I would pray that give him peace in his heart. Because a big part of what Billy experiences is just frustration. Right? And give him peace in his heart by your spirit. So he just feels the shalom that will be his one day in fullness. So I, I pray that, Lord, give him sweet dreams, give him peace in his heart. And then I say, Lord, thank you that we'll always be a family forever. We'll be a family forever. Now, that was the prayer I prayed with Billy all the time, out loud. And it was just those things. Give him sweet dreams, give him peace in his heart, and thank you that we'll always be a family forever. But I'm thinking all the rest of the stuff in my head. That's how I pray for people that I know that don't know Jesus, that are in my life. I pray when I think about them, and I might even pray out loud with them this, but mostly I'm just as I think about them. I pray that they would have sweet dreams. But this is the way I pray, that you would give them a vision of how things can be better. Lord, give them a vision about how things can be better in their life. Because if they're feeling the, the fall, all of life is uphill, they're going through something, Lord. Give them a vision of how life could be better for them. And then I, I pray that they would have peace in their heart, but I pray that, Lord, you calm their hearts, please, as they experience the uphill travel of all of life and whatever they're going through. That you would give them peace in a broken, chaotic world they are experiencing. And then the part where I would pray with Billy about how being a family forever, I pray that people would surround, you know, who I'm praying for, they would surround them with their love, but let it be my family, let it be my family of Christian friends that surround them so that they feel the love of Jesus. So that's how I think about people. Um, but in closing here, I want to tell you one last thing. Um, when I pray that prayer with Billy, right, and I've sort of said, now that's, that's taught me how to pray for my friends that don't know Jesus. But I'm, I'm taking you back to when I prayed that with Billy. So when we see him, say, on a weekend, and we do the whole Target, McDonald's, 
routine, you know, and we get him home and we're back to his house where he wants to be. And Sherry and I, we put our hands around each other and we hold our heads against each other and I say that prayer. And I say, you know, that exact same prayer. Father, thank you that we're a family. Give Billy sweet dreams. Give him peace in his heart and thank you that we'll always be a family forever. Now, I left out something really important. When Billy, I got called, and it was his last day in our home, and I walked into the chaos of what was going on, and um, we had to find a way, and it was just so hard to think about sometimes, but he ended up at the psychiatric, adolescent psychiatric ward in Decatur for uh, 45 days, I think it was. Then we found a bed for him down in, in um, uh, Birmingham that kept him for about another 90 days. And then God was amazing, provided a place for him in Jacksonville, Alabama um, and for about four more years. During that whole process of getting to Jacksonville, we didn't see him. We couldn't see him um, at the psychiatric ward. We saw him minimally in Birmingham, but we never had that chance to sort of connect like we did after a number of months. And so we, he was in his new home, and, I, and I, I wanted to say that prayer. But I wanted to see if he would finish it the way that I've been finishing it since he was itty-bitty. So I said the prayer, and we're doing the deal. And then when I got to the very end of it, I said, Lord, thank you that we'll always be a family forever. I stopped and looked at Billy. He's fairly verbal, but not quite. You'd have to meet him to know kind of what I'm describing. But I said, Billy, I said, what has Daddy always told you? Okay, so I had said the prayer, Lord Jesus, thank you that we're a family. Thank you that um, uh, give Billy sweet dreams. Um, and I give him peace in his heart. And thank you that we'll be a family forever. And I said, Billy, what has Daddy always told you? And he said these words. I wasn't sure if he would remember or not. He said, this isn't all there is. I've been telling that to Billy since he was four or five. I said, yeah, Billy, that's right. And then I paused. I wanted to see if he remembered the last thing I always say to him. And he did. He finished it. He said to me, this isn't all there is. You'll see. I've been telling him that since he was a little baby boy. And that's the hope that we have. That is the hope that we have. That is the hope that we tell people when they ask. I could not look Billy in the face and endure all the challenges of his institutionalized care. I couldn't look at his other brother and his sister. I couldn't look at my bride. If I thought this was all there is. And so I tell Billy, this isn't all there is, you'll see. Billy's sister has a tattoo down her back that says, this isn't all there is, you'll see. Um, it's had a huge effect on our family. And that's the hope for the world. When they ask. 
it's kind of like what Jesus, in Hebrews 12, we learn about Jesus. And I promise you, I'm closing on this. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, says this. And this is, I've seen the same thing here, and I'm going to point it out to you. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy that was set before Jesus is you and me. Yeah, I imagine Jesus saying, oh, this isn't all there is. I'm, you know, I am making all things new for the joy that is set before me. The new heavens, new earth. The resurrected bodies you and I will have. The kind of interaction you and I will have with each other. The kind of conversation I look so forward to with Billy. He will look me in the eye and he'll say, Dad, you were right. You were right. New heavens, new earth. This, this isn't all there is, and I do see it now. And then we can put our hands around each other and pray again like we've always done. Because this isn't all there is. And the pain that the, the pain of the fall that the people you and that you have in your life that don't know Jesus, think about how scary that must be and how, the, how painful that is. And they don't have the hope that you and I have. And you want them to have it. And so you position yourself where they can ask you. You show them what it's like to walk through pain and not be crushed because of Jesus, because of what awaits you and me. That is the only reason I can tell you you're compelled because of Jesus. The resurrected Jesus, the body he has, is going to be yours one day and just like his. The new heavens, new earth. Everything in eternity is when you get everything back that you lost. Everything you lose now, you get back. So you will miss out on nothing. That frees us up, right? And so we have nothing to lose, nothing to protect. That is real hope. That's the hope that you and I have. I couldn't stand up here and tell you I'm an evangelism ministry dude and I'm going to help you out to do this. If you can gain the knowledge that this isn't all there is, that, this, that you, will, you will lose nothing by sacrificing for other people, you will lose nothing by being with them, then the hope that you have as you face all the uphill battles of this life is what you can give away of the hope that you have. And you can take people where you found food, at the foot of the cross. Because this isn't all there is. You'll see, right? Right. Let's close in prayer. Father, I'm so grateful, so grateful for you, so grateful for this truth. May it compel us to love well, to enter into the wild, to be in proximity so that people can see our good behavior, if indeed that is what we have. Um, but we can answer the question of what hope we have in a world that is so broken. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.